This week's episode is brought to you by Main Street Windows, a complete guide to Disney's whimsical tributes by me, Jeff Heimbuck. It's a complete guide to all the window tributes at every Magic Kingdom-style park in the entire world. It's almost 300 pages of full-color window madness. Available October 14th, 2014 online at all major booksellers everywhere. Welcome to Season 3! Hello, and welcome to Communicore Weekly, the greatest online show and home of the world's first pair of independently born identical twins. I'm George. And I'm Jeff. And man, oh man, we have a long history segment for you today. Yeah, well, you should have told him. Now they'll all just fast forward past it. They'll, they'll listen to us at three times the speed. <laughs> <laughs> well, they'll get three times as much snark, because what you guys don't know is that we hide a lot of hidden messages in this show. So no, if we'll you play just, it really slow, you may hear some. No, we'll just, we'll just say everything much slower. So they hear it so, at normal speed when so they, they play it at quickly? normal speed when they listen to it at triple speed. Oh, that makes sense. Okay, it kind of sounds like I, well from Finding Yeah, Nemo. I can't even sit through that. So yeah, yeah, I'll have to just do normal speed. Okay, so let's let's jump into the history segment. It's time for Disney History. Back in 1949, a business card began to circulate. It stated, The famous Firehouse Five. We play for dances, picnics, weddings, wakes. Hot Dixieland Jazz Band. At the bottom was the telephone number to call them to book them. But what was the Firehouse Five, and who did they consist of? Well, in the mid-1940s, a group of Walt Disney animators, artists, writers, and musicians who all loved jazz would gather around a phonograph at the studio during lunch breaks and play along with the records. One day, the phonograph broke down, and someone decided to start playing without it. And according to Ward Kimball, to their surprise, it sounded better than the record, so they all joined in. Now, originally, the band consisted of the leader, Ward Kimball, on trombone, Clark Mallory on clarinet, Frank Thomas on piano, Ed Penner on uh, bass sax, and Jim McDonald on drums. The group initially billed itself as the Huggagiti Eight, and later as the San Gabriel Valley Blue Blowers. But eventually, they picked up Johnny Lucas on trumpet and Harper Goff, uh, I'm sorry, Harper Goff on banjo, making their original group a group of seven. Wow, so of course, many of these names should be quite familiar and recognizable to all the cadets. Kimball, of course, was a legendary animator. McDonald was well-known for supplying sound effects for the animated films and was the voice of Mickey Mouse from 1947 until 1977. Thomas was one of Disney's famous nine old men. Goff designed the Nautilus and helped with the design of Main Street USA and Adventureland at Disneyland. And Mallory was an animator at the Disney Studio, while Penner was a storyman. Now, the group actually discovered Johnny Lucas at a Halloween party back in 1945. Uh, Lucas was actually stricken with polio at the age of 16 and was crippled and he couldn't walk. And he got, got around in a wheelchair all the time. So since he couldn't bend his elbow, he actually devised a trumpet with a long neck so he can still play it. 
And uh, Ed Penner was actually the only one of the group to have any professional experience. Uh, in fact, he had a union card as a saxophone player from 20 years before when he teamed up with the band. Do we have union cards to be podcasters? We do not. Oh, well, don't tell anybody. Sorry. Okay, well, Kimball was a longtime member of the Horseless Carriage Collectors Association. It's an organization for vintage automobile fans. So in 1948, Ward and his wife Betty discussed the idea of taking the band along on a Horseless Carriage Club caravan from Los Angeles to San Diego. Say that San, ten times fast. San Diego. San Diego. San Diego. It was then that the band officially became the Firehouse Five Plus Two. And why that name? Well, as Kimball told comedian Groucho Marx on the TV show You Bet Your Life, because there were seven of us. That joker. Oh, is a joker. <laughs> now, according to the rules of the Horseless Carriage Club, vehicles could not be newer than 1914. The group actually managed to find a 1914 American LaFrance fire engine, which they bought from the city of Venice, California, for the paltry sum of $225. And of course, because it was from 1914, it was in terrible shape. So Kimball actually spent the next six months taking it apart and putting it back together again until it, according to him, looked exactly as it did the day it left the factory. So of course, if they were going to ride in it, the band would have to dress up as firemen. Kimball, going for authenticity, knew that modern fire helmets wouldn't do, so he put out an ad looking for authentic antique ones, claiming that the Grizzly Flats Fire Department needed them. And of course, for those of you who forgot, the Grizzly Flats Railroad was Kimball's life-size backyard railroad. Now, the helmets themselves were real leather and dated back to the early 1900s, so the band actually restored and repainted them. The band members also polished the brass on the engine and trained how to use the equipment, which was still in great shape. Kimball claimed, if we had to, the boys could really put out a fire. So it's a two-for-one deal when you hired them. <laughs> Just in case. The uh, fire engine was ready in time for the Horseless Carriage Club caravan down to San Diego. Uh, they had an auto show. Uh, it was a 250-mile round trip. While aboard the fire engine, the band played in the streets, serenaded firehouses along the way, stopped at schools, and disrupted classrooms when children ran out to listen to them, and generally caused all sorts of snarl traffic challenges. Now, one of the things that made the band unique was having a fire siren and alarm bell in their music. Uh, Kimball insisted it was not for, fun, for corn, but for fun and for what it adds to the music itself. Uh, there were fire bell introductions to songs, uh, the fire siren actually was used on all the outcourses, and they also used washboards, tambourines, bird whistles, duck calls, train whistles, and more, including playing on salad spoons and having a dog howl on some of their songs. Now, the performances were always high energy and lots of fun, and you never knew what you were going to get, based on that list alone. <laughs> so, all of these annex never altered the band's basic sound or its approach to jazz. The band played songs that it knew the audience wanted to hear, including Tiger Rag, Muskrat Ramble, the St. Louis Blues, Bill Bailey, Sweet Georgia Brown, and the popular When the Saints Go Marching In. However, the Firehouse Five Plus Two repertoire also included many of the best traditional jazz compositions from the early years of jazz that were unfamiliar even to some of the genre's enthusiasts. The band played at various dances, uh, jazz band balls, and some college and high school affairs, and even at a chiropractor's convention. That's kind of hilarious. Um, yes, it is. The band actually turned down a lot of high-paying jobs in favor of some, some uh, minimum-scale jobs because they seemed like they would just be a lot more fun for them to play at. <laughs> Their home base for performing originally was playing Monday nights 
at the Beverly Cavern in Los Angeles, where Kid Ori's Creole Jazz Band played during the rest of the week. At a New Year's Eve party in December 1948, the band performed in a large rehearsal room above Roy Hart's Drum City, a percussion-strong Santa Monica Boulevard in Hollywood, California. Now, after that performance, the group was approached by Lester Cohing, who had been an assistant uh, producer at Paramount P uh, Pictures and also a screenwriter. Now, at the time, Cohing had been blast blacklisted as a result of the House Un-American Activities Committee, and he was kind of looking to start a new business, and he was considering becoming a record producer. So, according to Cohing, the liner notes for the first Good Time Jazz LP, he said... While the firemen were packing their leather helmets, fire bells, and sirens, I was introduced to Ward Kimball. Will you record for me? I asked politely. What company are you with? Asked Kimball. None, I told him. But if you record for me, I'll have one. A few months later, on May 13, 1949, the first Firehouse 5 Plus 2 recording session took place with the recording of their theme, Firehouse Stomp. Now, Koning actually rented a small store near Paramount Studios and placed a sign in the window that read, Good Time Jazz Record Company. That he and assistant actually packed and shipped the two 10-inch uh, vinyl 78 RPM records at a retail price of 79 cents. Now, during the next 20 years, the Firehouse 5 Plus 2 would participate in 30 recording sessions and recorded 150 tunes for a dozen albums. Soon after the first recording session, bass saxophonist Ed Penner switched over to tuba. Scheduling conflicts called Lucas and McDonald to bow out of the band. Their replacements were cornetist Daly, excuse me, Danny Alguire and drummer Monty Mountjoy. Kimball remained the only constant in the band during its more than 30 years of performing, although reportedly Disney musician George Bruns would occasionally substitute for Kimball at performances. Now, the band continued to play live as well uh, at the Mocambo Nightclub and appeared several times on Bing Crosby Chesterfield radio program on television with Edwin, uh, Milton Berle, and the very first Walt Disney Christmas television special in 1950, among countless other appearances, including one on the original Mickey Mouse Club television show. Now, in addition, the band was also seen in the movies Grounds for Marriage and Hit Parade of 1951, and it was the first jazz band to play the Rose Parade in Pasadena. The band appealed to the general public, but they were also a huge hit with jazz fans, playing to large crowds at the Frank Bull Jean Norman Dixieland Jubilees at the Shrine Auditorium in Los Angeles. In the early 1950s, they made several journeys north to play at Hambone Kelly's Club, Oh, Hambone Kelly's Club Hangover at the Old Opera House in Virginia City, Nevada, and often other jazz greats join their performances as featured guests. Now, the band continued to play great jazz and to maintain their own sound, even with several uh, personnel changes over the, uh, over the decades. I'm sorry. I messed that up. <laughs> but uh, except for a brief hiatus from the spring of 1952 to the fall of 1953, the Firehouse 5 Plus 2 probably became the most popular and high-profile jazz band of the West Coast traditional jazz revival. Of course, when Disneyland opened, the band played there as well. First at the Long Gone Oaks Tavern in Frontierland, then later at the Golden Horseshoe Saloon, and finally in New Orleans Square. The band was also there on opening day on July 17, 1955, appropriately playing at the Firehouse on Main Street. Now, in 1971, the Firehouse 5 Plus 2 officially played its last gig, a car show at the ha Anaheim Convention Center, 
on November 17th. What a way to go out. What a way to go. <laughs> now, the members of the band had changed significantly over the years. Uh, Danny Alguire had been sidelined by a stroke, but uh, Don Kinch was flown in from Portland, joining Ward Kimball, uh, George Propet, K.O. Eklund, who had replaced uh, Frank Thomas on piano, Billy Newman, George Bruns, and Eddie Forrest for the last time. And there wasn't a dry eye surrounding the stage when the Baird uh, roared into Tiger Rag for the grand finale. In a letter dated August 5th, 1988, Kimball wrote, The band never, repeat, never rehearsed. We never played any of our repertoire twice the same way. I insisted on a simple beat. Tuba and bass drum on the first and third, snare, banjo, and piano left hand accenting the second and fourth beats. Most of our work was for big dances, playing jazz, waltzes, rumbas, you name it. Crazy textures, slide whistles, soprano sax duets, duck call choruses, and harmonica solos. For concerts, we upped the tempos. I guess you could call it all simplicity. Let him hear the tune. Now, for some of you Disney fans out there who have not heard their sound before, we very much suggest you check them out. They are fantastic, and several of their albums are actually still available today, including the Firehouse 5 Plus 2 at Disneyland, which was recorded live at Disneyland, as the name would imply. Um, <laughs> I know it's on CD, I know they have it digitally on, you know, all over the place. It's even on Spotify, so give it a shot. Uh, I think you guys would enjoy it. That's true. And do you remember during the commuter tour when we visited Walt's bar barn, not his barn, his barn, they had uh, one of the helmets from the Firehouse They did have too. one of the helmets yes. on display there, which was really neat to see. A nice little hidden piece history. And take photos with it. We, we were able to hold it, though I was afraid to touch it. Yeah, I didn't either. I got in the photograph with some of our friends yes. on the commuter tour. And let, let them, them do it. get in trouble if they yes. accidentally destroy it. Exactly. But not me. If, <laughs> yeah, me neither. If you have any comments or questions... Call us on the about the Firehouse 5 Plus 2. Call us on the Communicore Weekly GOAT line at 424-785-4628. That's 424-785-GOAT. You don't know what you know till we know you. You, know, you just don't know. Here's one little fact we bet you didn't. One little fact we bet you didn't know. The Wonderful World of Water Ski Show took place on Seven Seas Lagoon and ran from September 1972 to about September 1973 and cost 50 cents the first season. During the second season, the show cost 75 cents or a D ticket, and many showtimes were added, including one at 11 p.m. There was a special area between the Magic Kingdom monorail station and the lagoon that was gated and offered seating on a hillside of sorts. Now we know you. He's a nerd, he's a geek, but we all like to hear him speak. So listen up to the words from his speech. It's George's Book of the Week. This week's book is Reality Land by David Koenig. Uh, I first read Reality Land during its initial release in 2007. Me too! <laughs> interjection. Oh, okay. Um, we have a theme song for Interjection? No, no, we'll, we'll catch that later. Oh, so, sorry. Um, I was very fortunate to see David speak in 2007 at Mouse Fest. For those of you who might remember what that is, at a bookstore in Celebration, and the bookstore sale is no longer there. But he's just released an updated paperback version and sent me a copy for review. And I am so glad he did because it's been, what, seven years Carry since I've one. read it? 
I know I had to like, oh, there's too many. And, and there's a lot of the book that I had forgotten since my initial read. Um, I did do a full review during episode 76, which you don't have to go back and listen to, which you can multiple times. Um, but I wanted to revisit it since um, we've got this new version. So Reality Land has always been one of my favorite books because it really fills a much needed void in the literature about Walt Disney World. Basically, it's an unofficial look at the development and construction of the Vacation Kingdom of the World. The book follows the same formula as Mouse Tales, uh, except a lot of the space is devoted to the history and development of Walt Disney World, you know, whereas Mouse Tales focused mainly on anecdotes about Disneyland instead of construction. And it's obvious that uh, David spent a lot of time talking to cast members, executives, and construction people from the early days. The first chapters are filled with anecdotes about the preview center, hiring the first cast members, and the rigors of developing the property. So David does, he offers an easy to read and a compelling look at the overall development of the Vacation Kingdom. The stars of the book though are the individual cast members that Koenig was able to interview. He spoke to former executives that talked about the mishaps and the happy accidents, cast members that talked about the early years of working there, and with locals about the political machinations that took place. Um, you know, David also presents an intriguing view of how Walt Roy and Card Walker all dealt with the Florida project. Um, <laughs> there was a litany, so to speak, of undercover plans, political dealings, union issues, and theft. But you need to read about that. People were stealing stuff? They were stealing stuff? That sounds yeah. very on disney like to me. <laughs> well, it was the construction workers. Oh. That weren't Disney, but well, anyway. So, it, you know, as David moves through the timeline of the resort... He presents us with the major issues and the milestones, uh, including you know the fuel crisis of the 70s. I wasn't born yet. Shut up. The <laughs> question of where's Epcot, which we've talked about that before, and the expense of Epcot, which you know really led to Card Walker's retirement and and, and bringing in the new management of Eisner and Wells. Um, you know there were times during this book where I laughed out loud, and times where I sat there and wondered how in the world they got it all done. That project. So, um, just like uh, Koenig's other books. He doesn't really gloss over the negative side. He does cover the accidents that happened over the years, and one of the final chapters is devoted to Disney's security. And I, and I never felt like he was out to get anyone. He was just trying to present a, a fairly unbiased look at Walt Disney World. And of course, one story that stands out is the one that we've talked about is the myth of George. Not me, I'm real. But the ill-fated worker that's rumored to have died during the construction of Pirates. He actually used official records to show when the first actual death happened at Walt Disney World. He also covers accidents, missteps, and the Disney Reedy Creek policy. Um, you, you may have to remove your rose-colored mouse ears while reading Reality Land, though, because he is pretty honest. Uh, now, there really wasn't a lot of information about the uh, after Eisner and Wells took over. Uh, sort of, I got the feeling, because uh, Koenig wasn't a fan of Eisner. He almost vilifies him when talking about the creation of the Disney MGM studios. We would never do that. No, we don't. We like Eisner. Um, well, late 80s Eisner? Okay. Maybe. I like Eisner, okay. period, just again, for no, the that's record. True. That's true. So, um, But a lot of the more recent developments are sort of glossed over. Um, and there's not really a lot of information about the most recent 15 to 20 years. And that's a major drawback, but the early history you get is astounding. Um the, the first 200 pages alone are worth the price of the book. You'll learn more about the development of the property and what it took to get the resort up and running. And you will never disembark from the ferry or walk the down ramp from the monorail without thinking about how massive 
the undertake an undertaking of Walt Disney World was. So, bottom line, every Walt Disney World fan is going to love this one. It's one of the few books to tackle the early history. He does a fantastic job of telling the story of Walt Disney World and keeps you wanting to read more. You know, shortcomings, not a lot of information on the Disney MGM Studios, the Animal Kingdom. Because he's just but, focusing on, like, the really early years yeah, of the resort? That's about it. It's the construction. He interviewed so many people from the 70s that you just don't hear about any longer. And that's the real gem. Is good. So I really think you should buy it. So let me let me ask you a question because oh, I okay. read the book during its initial run, and you just said this is a newer version. So what is the yeah. difference between the old version and this newer <laughs> one? Like what has changed? I asked David before I tackled it. You know, am I going to find anything different? He goes, "Eh, it's paperback now." So <laughs> he did he did change some sentences. He added a few things, but nothing major. Still, if you don't already own it in hardback, this is a great time to buy it. So the um, book, when I read it, I, when I remember reading I mean, it was fantastic. I think I read yeah. uh, both Mouse Tales and then this one, like, in a row. Um, and I actually think it was at your recommendation on Imagineering, you know, wow. way back when, to be complete. Now that I'm thinking about it. So thanks. Hat tip to you. Um, <laughs> and I remember loving all three of the books. So, oh, I yeah. mean, if it's the same as before, I mean, it's still worth the purchase, I think, if they haven't read it yet. And he's not really pushing it as like a whole bunch of untold stories he pulled from his vault that nobody else has heard of before, you know, but he does say there's, there's some new things he's expanded just a little bit, but the real reason is to make it uh, more widely available, which I agree in paperback format. It's, it's a great read. Pick it up. I know you'll love it. It's reality land by David Koenig. Sometimes you might see it, sometimes you don't. Hey, look, what's that? It's a five-legged goat. (laughs) This goat is also a history lesson, so bear with me. You're not in school. I'm promising you it's going to be worth it. No no test? No test. I absolutely promise that. Okay, good. Back in 1775, way back when, still was not born yet, British troops had control of the city of Boston, while the rest of Massachusetts was considered to be in a state of rebellion against the British government. Because if you remember back then, you know, we were still under Great Britain's control. So, during this time, the troops, also known as the Redcoats, they were kind of given a special mission to make their way to the town of Concord and destroy the military supplies that the rebels had actually hidden there. Not the rebels that were led by the Rebel Alliance, but, you know, the American I was just... Okay, I'm glad you clarified that. that I was was going there. I was going there. That was a long time ago, but not a galaxy far, far away, so just for clarification. (laughs) So, the colonists received word of the attack, and with the help of Paul Revere and Joseph Warren, a warning was brought to the rebels in Concord and various towns in the area. And on April 19th, 1775, the Redcoats made their way to the North Bridge in Concord, where a group of rebels waited for them. Now, during the standoff, leaders on both sides instructed the troops to hold off fire, but an unknown source shot at the opposition. The shot, now known as a shot heard around the world, actually began the Revolutionary War. Now, how does this tie into Disney? When the Imagineers decided to open the Magic Kingdom with a land dedicated to the American spirit, it was decided that a bridge guests would cross from the hub into Liberty Square would actually represent the North Bridge in Concord, Massachusetts. And of course, it is the bridge that began America's journey to independence, so it's only proper that we journey into Liberty Square using that bridge. I thought it was they fired a shot from the firing range I, uh, where are you going with this Frontierland, and it was the first shot heard through i mean that that can totally fit into it as well that makes sense maybe. to me 
or the and when they opened the land, an Imagineer ran through the area and shot a rifle. Hey, that. Hey, let's go with that story. I was Disney like, Urban Legends brought to you by Jeff and George. <laughs> Coming soon to a podcast near you. <laughs> um, now that was always what my second favorite bridge after the Adventureland bridge, but they did flatten it a couple years ago. Of Is course, it weird that they, we have favorite Disney bridges? Do you guys think that's weird? I mean, I think it's kind of weird, but not really, because I, I do I, have favorite Disney bridges as well. I don't, but okay. I had favorite Disney bridges. Oh, you used to. They're gone now. And then you the grew out of it? got flattened. No, it got flattened. They oh, changed it got flattened. It. Okay. They changed both the two of the bridges in the Magic Kingdom. Well, tell us, if you've got a favorite bridge, or if you think it's weird that we like bridges at the Magic Kingdom, call us on the GOAT line, 424-785-4628, 424-785-GOAT. And tell us if that's weird or not. I think it's we weird, trust. Guys. We trust your opinion. We do. We, we do. We do. We I do. just still think it's weird. Yeah. Well, every time you said Concord, I was thinking I love Concord grapes. Mm, not quite, Jelly, but close but that enough. Was different. So close. Enough. Okay. Well, we've gone so far down the uh, rabbit hole. Uh, thank you guys so much for listening to another episode of Communicore Weekly. Please be sure to leave us a comment and give us a rating on the good old iTunes. Yeah, you can even tell us how weird we are on iTunes. Yeah, well, that's uh, fine. I'll accept that. As long that. as you give us a, a nine-star rating. Yes, please. That's it. So uh, you can always email us at communicorweekly at gmail.com and tell us if our bridge thing is weird. Mm-hmm. Of course, you can always like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash communicorweekly, and we'll have uh, Thursday Bridge Day. Bridge that was Thursdays. good. I was say, how, yeah, how are we going to incorporate the bridge into Thursday? I don't Thursday? know. That's a terrible and, hashtag. And I've got some photos I can send you. There is no too, alliteration so. there. No, there's none. There's none. Thridge Day? Thridge Day. No, it doesn't work either. Oh, well. Anyway, you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Imaginerding. He's at Jeff Heimbuck. And of course, like George just said, give us a call on the Communicore Weekly GOAT line at 424-785-4628. Pick up your copy of Communicore Weekly the Musical. You can get it at Amazon, CD Baby, or iTunes. Or listen for free on Spotify and Google Play. And seriously, guys, it's not a joke. It's a real musical. And you will awesome. love it. It's awesome. Hooray. Speaking of the musical, be sure to check out the Communa store at communicorweekly.com. Click on the store link. You can find links to the musical. You can find links to our tea Public shop to buy some of our T-shirts. It's good stuff. Check it out on there. All right. For Jeff Heimbuck, I'm George Taylor. And for George Taylor, I'm Jeff Heimbuck. Thanks so much for listening, guys and gals. We'll see you next time on Communicore Weekly, the greatest online show. Ellis. <laughs>